This is The Guardian. Today, the final episode uncovering a scandal that was buried in Bangladesh five decades ago, but is still shattering lives across the world. finally got the chance to interview Muslim Ali Khan. I'm Muslim Ali Khan. Presently, I'm little over around 75 years old. And I'm now presently, I'm going to teach human rights law. He was the country director of Terdazom Netherlands back then, who we'll sometimes refer to as TDH in this episode. And he had also worked for Bia two charities at the centre of the allegations. He said that before joining TDH Netherlands, he had a good job working within the government and he left that to join TDH because he felt that he could make a difference. Khan started this work when he was 25 years old in a country devastated by war and famine. Why were you doing this work? Why do you think it was important to help these people? They were going to die. Every day they were dying, I mean. Muslim Ali Khan told Teslima that TDH Netherlands never had an adoption programme. But, he said, he did sign off adoptions as part of his job with Bia. So I used to sign papers, I mean, that I've been transfer of citizenship. Yes, we call it a, a transfer of guardianship. So Khan says that the Ministry of Social Services essentially ran the entire process. He says that they would find abandoned children or abandoned children would be dropped off to baby homes throughout Dhaka and that if no one claimed them, they would then be put up for adoption. They would take photos of the child, they would place it in newspapers and just wait for somebody to say, that child belongs to me. If there is anybody to claim it, mm. do it in two months' time or one month time, otherwise you will do, like, have them abandoned. But when I pointed out that the parents of these children were unlikely to read newspapers, considering that most of them were illiterate, he actually seemed to overlook the point that I was trying to make that isn't it somewhat unethical that you would put a child up for adoption and not give anyone a real chance to claim that child as their own. It is the government, it was the policy of the government that this is how they will do it. Khan told Teslima that that decision was made by the government, not the charity he worked for. Teslima put the mother's allegations to him, 
that TDH workers took their children from them and put them up for adoption without their knowledge. Khan was adamant that all the children adopted were unwanted and abandoned. So you, you never spoke to any mothers in Tongi? No. You never spoke to any mothers about enrolling their children into schools? No. Khan mentioned that a couple of mothers tried to take legal action against him, but he says the cases were dismissed. There was a court case, mm. and five people they were given, their name was given. Okay. And my name was there in the top, and then four others' name. Mm. Those who filed the case, mm-hmm. they were told to come to the court. The mothers? Mothers. Okay. They came to the court. What was surprising is that they, one of those mothers was okay. apparently Samina Begum, Bibi's mum. Samina Begum was present? Uh, yes, yeah. she filed a case. Okay. Again, I mean, the court dismissed that, I mean. That moment led up to him actually saying that all of these mothers that made these accusations were basically lying. I have my idea that Tungi's mothers mm. are somehow, for some reason or the others, they are all polluted. What do you mean by polluted? That somebody's misguided them? Misguided them. That they're making things up? Yes, misguided them. Mm-hmm. That Mr. Khan is writing a car, he's doing this and that and all this. Khan claims that the women were influenced by someone to believe he was involved in their children being taken. But he denies that it was true. Why do you think these mothers used your name? Uh, yes, I'm the TDS director. Mm. I used to get there once in every fortnight or something like that. Mm. And I haven't seen any mother and no mother has spoken to me. Even though he denied knowledge of any forced adoptions, Tislima wanted to show him that there are mothers who are still suffering. So then I say, well, this is what one of the mothers that I spoke to had to say. And that's when I played the clip. One of the women that we spoke to that was particularly hurt was Sarah Nissa. And I'm just going to play what she said to us so you can have an idea. Sarah Nissa talks about taking her son to the TDH school and leaving him there and seeing him for the last time. And she breaks down crying. It's very emotional. And when I played this to him, he genuinely seemed quite sad. I promise on God, I will try to in my own way. So that what has really happened. I will look into this. I will let you know and I will do my best. That made me actually think, well, then that must mean that you have the tools at your disposal to get to the bottom of all of these situations. He clearly has the resources. He clearly has access to information that we don't. Then surely you could be the person that fills in all of these gaps. From The Guardian, I'm Nasheen Iqbal. Today in Focus... Will the mothers of Tongi finally be believed and reunited with their missing children? Rosie, we've just heard Teslima putting allegations to Muslim Ali Khan. He strongly denies claims that he was involved in wrongful adoptions. What does Muslim Ali Khan argue took place back then in Bangladesh? Khan says that all of these allegations stem from Jack Prager and his personal dislike of Khan. He says that Prager wanted Khan's approval in his 
children's charity and that when he didn't give it to him, Prager went off and found these mothers and created this list and uh, offered them bribes and so on to say these things about Khan. So he makes it look like a he said, he said. It very much becomes a he said, he said. And the problem with that is that if you are trying to get answers to very specific questions and you're trying to get someone to give you their full version of events and all they do is essentially, if they keep going after this one person, you don't get any closer to being able to answer the specifics of these questions. Does what Muslim Ali Khan says fit with your understanding of what happened? What Khan doesn't seem to grasp is that Prager did not come to us with his allegations. We found him. And it's not only Prager who's saying these things to us. Taslima has now spoken to a number of women who, decades on, are saying exactly the same thing about what happened to them, with no so-called incentive for what he may have thought that Prager was able to offer them. We can't offer them any incentive, and they're still saying exactly the same things to us. So you can keep going back and attacking Prager, but he's just one person that we have spoken to, and a number of witnesses who are telling us that they fully believe that Khan and TDH Netherlands were involved in a so-called adoption ring at the time. Rosie, what evidence is there, ultimately, that he was involved in the cases where children were wrongly taken? Well, that's the interesting thing because he is never named as ever having been in the room when these men who claim to work for TDH Netherlands were persuading these women to give up their children. But he was a country director of TDH Netherlands and at the same time, which is still a very peculiar concept, had a completely different job apparently working for Bia to oversee adoptions of Bangladesh children to the Netherlands. So it would seem the clearest through line from the children who were gone and the children who were adopted abroad to the Netherlands. So no one is saying that Khan was turning up on people's doorsteps. But as the country director, didn't he have responsibility to do something? If accusations are coming out about men going into people's homes, finding these women, often single women, widows, and at great lengths persuading them to hand over their children, and they say that they're working for TDH Netherlands, is it not the job of the country director of TDH Netherlands to investigate those claims fully, not just to clear themselves or clear their organisation, but to find out who these men are and why they're doing it? Did any of these charities or any of the authorities try to get to the bottom of what had been going on? The first investigation took place in April 1979 when TDH Netherlands uh, officials deemed allegations of an adoption ring serious enough to investigate. In December 1979, the Bangladesh government also investigates the allegations. Both those investigations found no evidence of wrongdoing. The government investigation essentially cleared Khan and found the mother's testimony to be baseless and the TDH investigation, which seemed to focus on questioning Khan's colleagues and other TDH employees, found the same. So that was, in some ways, the case was considered closed then. What about when the adoptees grew up and began discovering more about their lives and what might have happened to them? Was anything done then? When people like Bibi start to discover the truth about their adoptions... TDH opens another investigation in 2017-2018. The Dutch government put out a huge report in which they described evidence of criminality across international adoption systems into the Netherlands, not only from Bangladesh, but from Sri Lanka and other countries in the 1970s. And they conclude that wrongdoing was part of that system at the time. 
And then there's Bia, the charity who were facilitating adoptions that Khan worked for. In 2019, they put out a report looking at their role in adoption in the 1970s. So that's five different investigations in the last five decades since Prager first made his allegations in 1977. Rosie, reading that Dutch government report is really interesting. I mean, it's a pretty damning assessment of how things were run by charities in Bangladesh at the time. They say, and I quote, the activities of aid organisations in Bangladesh were interwoven as a result of the chaos that ravaged the country in the 1970s. Tasks were unclear, and those involved, including Khan, operated with double roles, Personal interests and mutual contradictions clouded the adoption practice. In fact, after this report, which, as you say, looked at adoptions from several countries, the Dutch government suspended international adoptions altogether. So on the face of it, this scandal was looked into. But Rosie, you've studied these reports. What did you make of them? At first glance, the TDH investigation appears to be very, very thorough. However, there are huge numbers of people who are involved in this process who are no longer alive and so can't give witness testimony. A huge amount of documentation that has gone missing since 1977. And then there's a part of the report that jumped out at me where it makes clear that the mothers who we're talking about were never interviewed as part of the 1979 TDH investigation. So well. When I went back to them and asked them if the mothers were interviewed for their most recent investigation, I was told that due to COVID restrictions, they couldn't travel to Bangladesh to interview them. The BIA World Children Report makes no reference to them whatsoever. And the 1979 government investigation has a number of question marks over it. Firstly, we have witnesses telling us that the women did not feel safe as part of that investigation. Secondly, Taslima spoke to a number of the mothers who said they were never involved in the investigation. We're talking about five different investigations over a series of decades and only one of them in which the key witnesses, the mothers, are actually interviewed, which seems like the biggest red flag. How can you have an investigation into accusations where you don't speak to the people making the accusations? It doesn't seem credible. It doesn't seem credible. All of the focus, as far as I can see, seems to have gone into clearing the accused parties, such as Khan and TDH Netherlands, of wrongdoing. We're still no closer to finding out what really happened to those children. The questions that keep coming back to us is who were these men that were going into these women's houses and offering them a series of inducements to take their children away from them into care? These women could scarcely have been more vulnerable to exploitation in this way. There can be nothing ethical about that process, and yet there's no evidence that work was done to find out who these men were or to stop them from doing it. What is your overall impression of what was happening at the time? Why would there be a boarding school scam? Why would mothers have their children taken away from them? So there are a number of different answers to that and all of them could be true. There could have been an adoption ring where children are being taken by false means, adopted abroad, and that makes money for the individuals involved in each transaction. But there's also another way of looking at it. I spoke to a man called Nigel Cantwell, who's regarded as the kind of foremost expert 
on international adoption. And he talked about the 1970s as being this extraordinary period of time in which foreign adoptions began to transition into a business model and, as he put it, meant that exploitation was part of that business model. If you have huge numbers of people employed on the ground in a country to facilitate international adoption, then that becomes a business model which needs to be sustained. You can see how that supply and demand works in cold figures. For example, Bangladesh to the Netherlands. So the official figures show that in 1972, when we know adoptions were starting to happen in that rescue sense, there are no children who go from Bangladesh to the Netherlands. But by 1976, when there's an industry in place, it's 88 children. That rises to 124 children in 1977. This is when the allegations start to surface in a a bigger sense. And then by 1982, it comes down to one. That's the last child who goes abroad until the Abandoned Children's Act is repealed in Bangladesh. Rosie, what do you think needs to be done now? We have asked the Bangladesh government to reopen an investigation and to go back and question the mothers, put them at the heart of it, which is what we feel hasn't happened with any of these investigations so far. We know that the Bangladesh government has the power to bring together all of the resources that are needed to find out what happened to these women's children. And there is still time. Time is running out. These women are very elderly, but there is still time for them to find these children and reunite them, which is all these women are asking for. They're not asking for compensation. They're not asking for anyone to go to prison. They just want to find their children. The Bangladesh High Commission in London have been very responsive to our reporting and they have determined to raise this with the Bangladesh government in Dhaka. So we're in the process of pushing the Bangladesh government to respond to that. Back in the Netherlands, adoptees are looking for other ways to find closure. Bibi, who told us she discovered she was a missing child after she watched a TV documentary, is on her own quest for justice. In 2018, Bibi mounted a legal case against TDH Netherlands, World Kinderen, and the Dutch government for their alleged involvement in fraudulent adoption. But the initial judgment concluded that she had taken too long to bring her claim, despite only discovering the truth of her story a year before. She is now appealing and expects a decision this autumn. She won't give up. I do it for my mother. Everything what I do now at this moment is for my mother because she starts something and I want to finish it. And for me, is it really important that I do everything what is in my power to get some justice. Rosie, what I find incredible is that after all these reports is that there hasn't been a coordinated effort into reuniting these families who were just torn apart. And in fact, there are still people out there who don't even know that this might be their story. Exactly. That's how we feel. One of the people that we spoke to was a woman called Sigma Huda. She's the former UN Special Rapporteur on Trafficking, and she is still a practicing lawyer in Dhaka. She represented some of the mothers on Jack Prager's list in their pursuits to get their children back and to get justice for what had happened to them. 
And during the course of her representation of the mothers, she interviewed hundreds of other families that she believed the same thing happened to. There is one organisation which is working to reunite families and has had an astonishing success rate. Shapler Community Foundation started work in 2017 and since then they have reunited 40 families. 39 of those families have the same story as Bibi's mother. So that's 39 people who say you were never supposed to be adopted abroad in the first place. So if they can reconnect that many families in that short space of time, then the potential for there to be a huge number more seems quite likely. They sound incredible. Can you tell me more about this organisation? So Shapler Community Foundation was started by Connor Verhul and Suma De Hay. They're both Bangladeshis who were adopted to the Netherlands in the 1970s. No one really took the initiative to actually set it up. So I thought, okay, let me... I, I think it's a good idea and this is our only option. Since it's confirmed we cannot rely on our papers, let's try this. And that's how Suma and I started to form a team. Connor found out in 2017 she was not an orphan, as was listed on her adoption papers, and she was probably never supposed to be given up for adoption in the first place. She was told that she had been given over to a children's home for medical care and subsequently adopted abroad and never reconnected with her parents. And she works with Suma Dehay, who is still searching for her family. Coming up, Taslima joins Suma as she tries to find her birth family. Guys, pop culture is returning on Thursday, the 14th of September. You will also have the chance to attend the show's very first live event. I will be at the London Podcast Show on Sunday, the 17th of September. And joining me is a matchmaking expert, you know, Married at First Sight's very own Paul C. Brunson. Purchase your tickets to be in the room or on the live stream at kingsplace.co.uk forward slash pop culture. Bye. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Today in Focus is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online 
and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash todayinfocus today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash todayinfocus. My name is uh, Suma de Hai. I'm adopted from Bangladesh on June 1977. I was uh, nine months old when I came to Holland. I'm uh, 46 uh, on this moment and I'm still searching for my uh, birth families. Teslima, you followed Suma on her journey to find her family. How did that go? Suma has been looking for her family for over 30 years. She's been to Bangladesh five times in search of her parents, and it's been an extremely painful process for her. Every time when I come to Bangladesh, I have maybe two questions, and I came back with 10 questions more. If you meet Suma, you just like want the best for her. I remember when I first spoke to her about her story, it was heartbreaking because of how hard she kept trying and didn't give up hope. Imagine looking for something, anything, for 30 odd years and always coming back empty-handed. Yeah, the painful thing, what, what I have on, on that, yeah, I have to start over again for searching. And yeah, then I thought, who am I? What was in my paper? Is it right or is it wrong? But Suma finally receives news that she has a DNA match with a cousin in Bangladesh. It's only her fifth cousin, but this is news for Suma and something she's holding on to. When I discovered that she had finally found a DNA match, I was just so happy for her and actually really excited that she agreed to letting me follow her on this search. So tell me about that trip. So we arrived in an area called Jamalpur. We started off early in the morning and Suma seemed really nervous, but hopeful. Well, I feel a little bit uh, tired because I didn't sleep so well this night. Mm. Maybe because of the, I got nervous or a lot of things in my mind uh, going around. But I'm really excited to what will happen today and just see. Yeah. Just let's see. I was excited to actually witness how Shapler's work is done on the ground, but also about the possibility of potentially finding a family member. We traveled by boat. At one point, we traveled by motorbike. <laughs> it was hectic. I nearly fell off at one point. Don't tell Rosie. The first village we arrived at was the village of her fifth cousin. It was such an insane experience. It was extremely emotionally charged. The whole time I was just watching Suma for her reaction, but it's also the other party, right? You turn up on your motorbike to a family who lives in the middle of nowhere 
and they're confused. They're like, who are these people, random foreigners that have turned up on motorbikes? <laughs> How do you explain something like that? Like, hi, my name is Suma. I might just be related to you. Suma doesn't speak Bengali. The family that we have come to see don't understand a word of English. Uh, tell me your parents' name. What is written on the paper? What I told you. So all of this is happening through the medium of a translator. And everyone's crowding around us. And it just felt extremely high pressure. <laughs> Through these conversations, from one lead, we were able to obtain another lead. So we narrowed down some links. See, it can be from that family. It can be one of the delegates. Another will be his mother's side house. That is close by here. So he is connecting with everyone. Mm -hmm. We had to then jump back on the motorbike again and the sun was starting to set, so we were losing sunlight. Towards the end of the day, we found ourselves arriving at a cousin's house. And a group of brothers came out and Shapla had like this questionnaire where they asked questions to try and see if this is like the correct family. And they were able to confirm that this was in fact Suma's third cousin. I mean, a third cousin might not seem that big deal, but for Suma, who has absolutely no connection whatsoever to any of her birth family, this was a huge deal. There were like two men who, they just looked so much like Suma. I looked at her and I was like, are you seeing this? And she was just like, it's crazy. Like they actually look like me. Suma, like for the first time, really seemed like she had a glimmer of hope. She got emotional, they got emotional. They wanted to take a family photo, which was really cute. Okay, one photo. You want to take a picture? I, of course, offered to be the photographer. So they were all lined there in this small little house in a random village in Jamalpur. Suma standing in the middle, surrounded by this family, and they were just, they were happy. They were happy. They said that they will keep in touch and try and get her closer to finding that second cousin. Or perhaps even her parents or siblings, like, is she getting closer to that? We hope so. We're not there yet. I think at this point it was midnight and we knew that we couldn't continue. Of course, Suma has her family in the Netherlands. She has children, so can't exactly commit to spending months in Bangladesh looking for her family. But she seems satisfied with the results of that day. This is the first time I will go home with not so much uh, questions, uh, without answers. She was really emotional. She was happy. She was excited. The children always ask about her family or what her birth family might have been like. Mm. So for her, this search was very much not just for her, but for them too. And she gets emotional just speaking about it. She shared that when she had that initial match, it was her 13 or 14 year old daughter who was so excited saying, oh my God, like mom, like maybe this is our cousin, but maybe we're going to find your family. When I talk, talk to my children about this cousin, mm. 
they react uh, differently. So mm. that cultural connection is important yeah, for them. Yeah, uh, I, I saw the reaction uh, on the face. Mm. And it was just the children's reaction of like wanting to belong or wanting to tap into this culture, which is so alien to them, that really moved her. Rosie and Teslima, through Shapla and their work, there does seem to be a glimmer of hope for those searching for their loved ones. And I guess after working on this story for so long and having met so many people affected by what has happened, what is your hope for what happens next for them? I think Teslima and I just really wish for these parents that they're able to find their children again while there's still time, while they still can. And we know through the work that Shapla does that it's completely possible and that it's within the power of the Bangladeshi government to help make this happen. There are still so many mothers in Tongi who are still alive. If these women who have had such a horrific thing happen to them, if there is no justice for them, then the only other thing would be for them to be reunited with their children. If you missed the train you will know. I was making my way back to my hotel after an extremely long and exhausting day in Tongi when I heard a young girl singing a song about being a hundred miles from home. And when you think about it, that's really what all this is about. Families being selfishly torn apart, mothers who one day wake up and find their children gone. And those children who, after all this time, are just desperately trying to come back home. In a further statement to The Guardian, Muslim Ali Khan denied the allegations made against him in their entirety. He said he had worked for both Bia, overseeing the intercountry adoption of children, which was not illegal, and TDH Netherlands. He says a government inquiry in 1979 found the allegations against him, quote, were false and baseless, and recorded the families as saying they had not been coerced into giving up their children, but rather had done so voluntarily for, quote, financial, social or medical reasons. In the years that followed, further legal action was brought against Khan by families whose children had been adopted abroad, but he has never been convicted of any crime. Jack Prager maintains his allegations against Muslim Ali Khan and denies the allegations Khan makes against him. A spokesperson for Terdazom Netherlands told The Guardian that allegations that local TDH Netherlands staff were, quote, involved in misleading parents to give up their children for adoption have never been substantiated. 
They also said they were not an adoption agency, did not run a children's home, and moreover, did not mandate staff to engage in adoption-related work. TDH Netherlands say their building in Tongi was later used by BIA, which they believe contributed to the misconception that TDH Netherlands was involved in adoptions. Nevertheless, they describe Bibi Hassanar's account as terrible, and the allegations of the women in Tongi as heartbreaking. They say that since 2019, they have been working with and providing financial support to a charity that helps reunite adoptees with their relatives in Bangladesh. In a statement to The Guardian, World Kindrin say that as they're currently involved in judicial proceedings brought against them by Bibi Hassanar, they were not able to comment on her allegations. A spokesperson from the Bangladesh government said, The government of Bangladesh, under the leadership of Honourable Prime Minister Sheikh Hasina, is strongly committed to protecting child rights and preventing them from abuse. You can read more from The Guardian's Rights and Freedom series and pieces written by Teslima and Rosie on this story. I'd recommend two in particular. The first is titled, I'll Never Know Where I'm From, Plight of the Adopted Children of Bangladesh's Biringona Women. And the second one is Bibi's story, titled, My Mother Spent Her Life Trying to Find Me, The Children Who Say They Were Wrongly Taken for Adoption. You can search for both of those and more at theguardian.com. Finally, if you enjoy this series or other episodes of Today in Focus, do leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nasheen Iqbal, and this series was reported by Rosie Swash and Taslima Begum. The series producer was Natalie Khatena. Sound design was by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producers were Elizabeth Kassin, Huma Khalili, and Joshua Kelly. We'll be back on Monday. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.